0: what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions thank you for joining us in this episode of the fundraising talent podcast here's your host author fundraiser and master trainer jason lewis
1: hi podcast listeners this is jason lewis and i am your host for the fundraising talent podcast i want to thank you for joining us today to the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Julia. Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I am delighted that we're together. Uh, you and I were just uh, sort of reminiscing on the uh, first time we were together. We were in Milwaukee. We think we seem to think it was either 2018 or 2019. <laughs> but a, we were, it all we blends were, together. Yeah, we, we were remembering that was just on the other side of history for most of us. Yeah. <laughs> We've I all know. sort of learned how to exist in virtual formats. And so I've had a lot of fun getting to know people here on this platform. And I'm delighted that you're with me today. Julia, we're going to have a great conversation. But before we do that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Sure. Hello, I'm Julia Campbell. I am a digital marketing expert and author, um, speaker, and I have some online courses for nonprofits as well. I started my journey, I really started it in middle school because I was volunteering with nonprofits. I actually volunteered um, some weekends at homeless shelters and did food drives, and I've always been an activist and involved in social Causes. So yeah. this kind of just led into a natural, um, just a natural procession of my career as a fundraiser, a marketer, and now a, a consultant. So I, and I don't know if you
1: know this, I did, I was in the Peace Corps for two years. I, and, I think I did know that. I think, yeah. I think you're one of the few people sort of in our space that sort of has that in their narrative.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I know. Make- I'm surprised I, I don't meet more, but now the Peace yeah. Corps is. Not running, unfortunately, Um, but because of the pandemic, because of funding, because of, you know, politics. But I would love to see the Peace Corps, you know, launch again. And I would actually – I'd probably love when I'm retired to participate in it again, honestly. But (laughs) it was just a transformative experience, as you can imagine. But that's also where I got my first taste really of fundraising. Yeah. Because – we were raising money for projects and I was working with a lot of NGOs there, international yeah. NGOs. Yeah. And this was before Venmo and before PayPal and before anything, we had to call home or email home and actually get Western union people, to Western union us money and had to go to the Capitol to get it. It was a whole big process. I think about it now. And cause it was 2000, the year 2000. So there
1: was no, so what do you do? No yeah, mobile score, you do the peace Corps. After college, how does that sort of work? How does the timeline? Do you before college? Yes, so
2: college, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people do it right after college. So okay. I actually took a year after college, and I'm from Boston. I went to Boston University. I studied oh. magazine journalism. Everyone oh. I know was in advertising or PR or journalism, or because I went to the College of Communications. If Jobs were literally falling off trees. Like in 1999, when I graduated college, it was crazy. I could not get a job though. It's okay. I just, to save my life, <laughs> all my friends had these amazing jobs. And I moved to New York city with, um, my still best friend from college. Um, and she had this incredible job at like an advertising agency and was making all this money and I was temping and I was miserable. So that's when I decided I was going to apply for the Peace Corps most people do it immediately after college but I'm actually glad that I took a year moved to New York did that whole thing um and then left so I was actually about a year year and a half older than a lot of the people that were there but some people were there was a married couple um there were retired people but the majority the majority are right out of college
1: so was it like a great awakening sort of experience? did you figure something out in the P- do you figure something out in the Peace Corps that you don't figure out in college?
2: Yes, one hundred percent first of all, you figure out that you're not as important as you think you are. Secondly, uh, you okay. figure out very quickly that there are problems that you can't solve, and yeah, you yeah. go into the Peace Corps with these grand ideas. It's really almost analogous to fundraising when I was um in my first development director job, you go in with all these grand ideas of how you're going to change things and all this yes. great stuff you're going to do. And yes. then you quickly see the reality on the ground. And the thing that actually I did learn in the Peace Corps that really applies to a lot of my work right now is that you do, you have to, everything's about building up trust. You cannot come in. You cannot go into the village as this, privileged white girl from America and start bossing people around, you have to earn the trust of people. You really have to learn who the movers and shakers are. Like who is the woman in the village that everybody goes to, um, you know, when they're pregnant, like who's the midwife, who's the, you know, you know, the chief of the village, but who are the people that really make the village, the town work. And then you have to do so much storytelling in order to relate to people in a different culture. Um so I I actually really learned also mar- about marketing because if you are not if you're not trusted and you're trying yeah. to promote these messages I was a health volunteer. So I was doing malaria prevention, STD and AIDS prevention, um uh-huh. even simple things like washing your hands and washing vegetables and just very simple public health mm-hmm. campaigns. Sure. And so it was. It was kind of like marketing, um, but you have, you had to have the right people deliver the right message in the right context, and you had to do a lot of listening and learning first. I would say I was probably there about a year before yeah. we ever did any like official campaign, because it was just a lot of listening, learning. First of all, it's completely different language. So in Senegal, they oh, speak love that. French, but in my village, they speak Pular, Fulani, um, and Wolof. So you had to completely learn a different language and a different culture. And it was, I just, I decided to do this because I didn't want to be a backpacker. Like I had backpacked through New Zealand and Australia in college yeah. and I took six months and I I was st- I was still studying, but I was I backpacked around, and I didn't like the backpacker lifestyle. Like you're just in a different place every night. Yeah. You don't really get to know the people. You don't really get to know yeah. where you are. So yeah. I wanted an experience where I could really live somewhere and immerse myself in the culture. So yes, it was it
1: was pretty Gosh, incredible. That's a really good. That's a fantastic story. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, Julie, you got to tell that story more often. You got to put some more layers in it. Um, because there's so much, there's so much that you just said in three minutes that makes sense of what probably a lot of us in fundraising, you know, we don't want to be nomadic and constantly moving around. We need to probably be rooted. And I mean, just, just that final thought there has got me thinking that maybe two. I do need to tell that story. You do. (laughs) (laughs) If you, if you, yeah, just put some, put some, you you know what the layers are. It's your story, but, uh, yeah.
2: I tell it in my, in my storytelling book, my first book. In the yeah. intro, um, but I, d- I don't in the second book. So you're absolutely right.
1: Yeah. What would a Yeah. I mean, if we, if we if we required all, you know, junior fundraising recruits to, to, to do something similar to the Peace Corps where they had to um, immerse themselves in a culture for a year before they really expected themselves to be able to change, because, you know, that's what we do yeah. in fundraising. We think we're going to change the world overnight. and Yeah. Good luck. Well,
2: right? it's another example I can give is I'm on the school committee here. And yeah. it's the same thing. You come into the school committee, you get elected, you have grand plans, and oh my, like, then you see how the sausage is made and everything <laughs> is very slow and bureaucratic. And you really do have to just listen and learn for about a year before yeah. you can really make cha- the changes that you want or really, you know, institute the the plans that you want. So being patient. It's just, it's very hard for me, but <laughs> it does, it pays off if you want to do something really important.
1: I, I love it. So, um, Julia, we ask mm-hmm. our guests to come on with a big idea, or bold opinion. Uh, we don't ask our guests to tell me what it is, but it's made for generally makes for a good 45 minute conversation. So, um, we always ask what's your big idea, or bold opinion about fundraising. What do you got for us this morning?
2: Well, I mean, it's it's just something that I've been thinking about. It's something that's been bothering me, but I mm-hmm. it actually stems from a conversation that we had in Milwaukee. So the the goal that nonprofits have, of course, is to constantly build this pipeline. They need to have the pipeline of donor prospects. They need to have donors coming in from all angles. Um, they need to constantly be building this pipeline. But the problem with small nonprofits is that they end up doing a really abysmal job of communicating with current donors yeah. and cultivating them because yeah. they're marketers as well. So yeah. the mar- you're the marketing team, you're the fundraising team, you're the social media team, you're the donor relations team. And I work with mostly small shop fundraisers and they're so focused on building their email list or their social media following. And, you know, I'm a social media marketing consultant, but they don't look around at the donors they actually have or thank and report um, with the donors that they actually have. So in my opinion, this really demands a choice. Small shops, I really think, need to recognize that marketing and fundraising are distinct careers, distinct industries, look at marketing and sales, look at advertising and marketing. They're all different things and none can be done well if you're constantly shifting gears and splitting your time between them. So what I usually tell my clients, I say, you have to really make a decision where you're focusing your time and look at, look at what marketing requires today. It requires you to know Facebook ads, Google ads. It requires you to be on top of social media trends. It requires you to know email marketing and websites and blogging and even podcasting. Some nonprofits are doing podcasting because marketing is all about getting new eyeballs on your cause and getting visibility. Fundraising, I feel fundamentally, and I think you agree with this, is about turning those eyeballs into donors, but then cultivating those donors. So until we recognize that marketing is, should be kept almost completely separately, I mean, they do, they're no, not going to work at cross purposes here, and they should yeah. be a team. But until we stop putting all of the tasks on the fundraiser's plate, we can't expect to get the results that we want. And this stems from a lot of the jobs that I had when I was the development and marketing director and volunteer coordinator at a domestic violence shelter um, when I lived in Virginia. And what I found really quickly was that I loved the marketing piece. Like, that was where I wanted to spend all my time. I didn't like the actual going to coffees with donors, calling donors. That just wasn't – I don't know. I didn't like that piece of it. So what happens – when you force someone to have this all encompassing job is those kinds of pieces are really going to kind of fall to the wayside or fall through the cracks. So I'm just really, I'm on a mission. Yeah. To tell small shops that they have to understand (laughs) that the two are completely different and require different skill sets.
1: I'm trying to remember what the, I was probably, I probably had a little alcohol in my system. (laughs) You were telling me,
2: I think you were telling me that social media was useless and fundraisers shouldn't use it. Does and I work. was sort of agreeing with you. I don't agree that it's useless. Happens- I, I agree with you that fundraisers shouldn't be responsible for it.
1: Okay, here's the here's the question for you, because because I know what you do. What happens if we just 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 do a uh, uh, what's the just do a, an exercise with me? What okay? How would your work change if your client, if all of a sudden we ran out of donors? How would your work? You're still doing the same work, right?
2: What do you mean? But I think run out of donors.
1: If you ran out of donors to acquire. So if you just shifted your if you just shifted your oh. strategy, what would fundraising look like through the lens of what you do if we stopped communicating to the new donor or the, the donor we want to acquire mm-hmm. and all of our communication went to the donor? Like there was no additional donor to acquire. We sort of mm-hmm. reached our carrying capacity. All the donors on the planet had been acquired <laughs> and we knew we weren't going to acquire another one. How would people Uh. like yourself sort of communicate? What would the the work look would be differently? Because I think Mm. that's my, I think that's in in the first book, I I Mm. distinguished between two gifts. It was the initial and the subsequent gift. And Mm -hmm. I made the argument that too much of fundraising is focused on that initial gift. Oh, I agree. So what what if we said we only want subsequent gifts? How would your work look differently? Well, I think that's what
2: fundraisers should be focused on. So marketers should be focused on the first gift. Sure. And yep. fundraisers like should be focused on sustaining the gift or doing the research, looking through the database. Like I, like I said the other day, I talked to Pamela Grow, yep. and we were talking about our worst – nonprofit gift experiences. And she was yeah. saying that she had donated to um, a veterans organization. She'd seen someone post about it on Instagram sure. and she was instantly drawn to it because her dad was a veteran and, and she's very involved in those kind of causes. She became a monthly donor right off the bat. She said she donated to them for three years, never heard like a word from them. Never got a thank you, never got a call. And she said, that's a missed opportunity because I could have been a major donor to them if they'd reached out. And if they'd noticed, hey, there's somebody that doesn't live in Michigan. Um, And Stephen Shattuck actually talks a lot about this. The hidden gems in your database. If fundraisers had more time to look through and be like, oh, this woman is not from Michigan. She's giving $20 a month. May, that's interesting. Maybe I should call her up and see why does she give? What is she doing? How is this important? Um, and you know, is there potential for a longer term relationship there, or even just to say thank you? So we get so focused on what happens. That initial is the, gift.
1: Yeah. That yeah. initial gift is creating so much noise, and it's creating noise in two different ways. It creates so many tr- transactions because eighty percent of the gifts that that come come in along with Pamela's gift. Yeah. Don't really have any inclination to give again. And mm-hmm. then, and then so many of our fundraisers have spent their entire careers sort of becoming professional initial gift securers, <laughs> you might call them. Mm-hmm. And so it's creating so much noise. And so yes. I, I we'll think, think of, that's yeah. essentially if we could get more people. To sort of, uh, you know, hinge on the notion that fundraising I like what you said. I mean, if, if marketing is about the initial gift and fundraising is about the subsequent gift, mm-hmm. but that fundamentally changes the role of the fundraiser, mm-hmm. and that fundamentally changes the nature of the relationship, doesn't it?
2: Absolutely. Now, talk about the noise – Think about yeah. Facebook fundraising, okay? <laughs> All day, every day, I spend you know time sure you know answering noise. questions yeah. about Facebook fundraising yes. because people are so hung up on the fact that they can't get that um, that they can't get that second gift. But Facebook fundraising is really actually about marketing, so it's not about building your donor file. It's about getting the word out. Like if I start a birthday fundraiser for you know the local food bank my friends and family see that a lot of other people see that it's about getting exposure much more than it is about building that donor pipeline, you know? So I think we're focused on the wrong things. I think Facebook fundraising is, should be a huge piece of what the marketing team does. The fundraising team or person can certainly weigh in. And obviously the people that are donating their birthdays, you want to talk to those people, but we're just getting so hung up on like, a little tiny gift and we can't communicate with this donor and then what about the donors that we already have that we have their native email we do not communicate with them either i don't
1: i don't think we ever learn like i'd love to do it you and i are going to go on the road together because we're going to figure out how to teach a I don't have any problem with. I don't have any problem with what you do. You and I need to figure out how to teach fundraisers how to focus on the subsequent gift through everything that you teach. How do you? Mm-hmm. How do you help an organization? Yes. Figure out how to get through the noise and use these electronic platforms that an individual like yourself is advocating for. And then, how do you also fi- find the? In Pamela's case, how do you find the Pamelas through all of that? Mm -hmm. And in some way, how do you design it? I I, want to go back to your, um, you you said you're on a school board, right? Yes. So I think what we've watched, I've talked about this with someone else on the podcast recently. So think about this paradigm of the initial and the subsequent gift. Well, in yes. the forthcoming book, I'm talking about the difference between the consumer and the citizen. I think mm. the initial gift is a consumer and the subsequent gift is a citizen. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different way to communicate. And the citizen is usually someone you're communicating with, like it's a dialogue. Yep. And my guess is those board meetings lately, if you've had if you've had board meetings like most school boards have had lately, oh, yep. they're a mess. They're, but a mess. they're actually quite healthy because they're dealing with all of the fiasco that's happening sort of in our world right now oh yeah and i don't know that we've learned as fundraisers how to have those messy conversations and the initial gift's never going to give us that that's what pamela's asking for pamela's asking somebody call me up take my feedback i might even tell you that you suck at what you're doing but in (laughs) the process we'll build a meaningful relationship on it isn't that essentially the way this is supposed to work
2: I think that's absolutely the way it's supposed to work. So for me, what I encourage fundraisers to do is just do more communication than you're doing. So a lot of times a fundraiser slash marketer slash volunteer coordinator slash everything will will, work with the small shop fundraiser. And they'll say, well, you know, I don't want to email too much. I don't want to. They email four times a year. I had one client that sends four (laughs) emails a year. To their donors. Yeah. And I thought, okay, if I delete one of those, then I've only heard from you three times. Yeah. And it's via email.
1: Yeah,
2: It's not even a newsletter. It's not a phone call. It's not anything that, um you know, it's just this medium that maybe my email changed. So now I'm not hearing from you at all. So I think what fundraisers need to do in their communications, which is what I teach, is to stop being so scared of communicating and to communicate more than they think they should. Like you don't have to send a 27 page newsletter every week, but you should be checking in um, more than two, maybe, I mean, two, three times a month. I usually recommend weekly, but uh, for some fundraisers, that seems that's going to make their head explode. But if you're not, constantly top of mind like the goal should be just like for us like in the business that we have like in consulting in speaking and writing you have a follower then you want to turn them into a friend and then you want to turn them into a customer
1: sure.
2: it's really rare that someone just goes from like a follower yes, to a customer
0: yep. right because you right, have to build you know. that
2: trust like i was talking yes. about yes so that's also what you were talking about we need to f- spend much more time in the friend area you know like let's make these people really feel like they're part of a special community let's make them feel like make them feel proud and excited to support us and then when you do ask for the subsequent gift it's so much easier but if you have not communicated with them all year or if you don't have really effective communications i mean if you're just sending out promotions all the time then
1: right we're you- broadcasting that's i had a guest on here a gentleman who does a lot of direct mail up in uh in in um canada and he was saying that a lot of what fundraising sort of suffers from is that our older generations are sort of come from sort of the broadcast era and yes. now i mean you think about like what we're doing here today you and i are going to literally have a 45 minute conversation we're probably going to you know stumble over our words and interrupt each other and i'll probably throw in a curse word or something that I shouldn't, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not going to, we're not going to clean it up. So we're not going to, we're not going to go through the editing process. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think what I'm hearing you say is, is that you want people to, to, you know, if, if I'm putting out a weekly, some of the, like, for example, and you, you see this stuff we do, we both do it on LinkedIn. Some of the most, some of the most sort of stuff that I get the most meaningful responses from are the things that literally come right off the top of my head at mm-hmm. a moment that, you know, I'm smoking a cigar on the back porch or something, or, you know, don't even plan it. It's not broadcast. It's not prepped. I yeah. think that's what you're sort of telling fundraisers. They got to learn how to do, but if they're always communicating to the donor that they don't know, they don't learn how to do that. They don't learn that instinct.
2: No. And the problem is we communicate to the donors we have and the donors we don't know in the exact same way, yes. with the exact same message. And that to me is crazy town. Like you need to, that's why the difference between marketing and fundraising is so vital to like draw that line. Because the communications that you have when you're casting a wide net are so much different than somebody that's raised their hand and said, hey, I like you, I signed up for your email, I want to learn more. So what happens is we just lump everybody together and our message gets really muddied and it's not clear and it's not attracting anybody and it's not compelling. So I see that all the time, um, on social media, which is, you know, what I do and what I teach, I really believe like social media, it needs to be the basics of what you do, the stories. It needs to be simple. It needs to be visual Stop trying to tell me all the intricacies of your (laughs) programs and your thing. Cause I don't know if I like you yet. You know, I don't really know if I like you yet. Once I get on your email list, once I make a donation, go for it. Tell me everything, you know, tell me more, dive deeper into things, get more, you know, use jargon and use um, all the terms that you want and draw me in. So there has to be that kind of communications journey, but I think, Everything we do, we just sort of cut and paste it and throw it everywhere, like you said, broadcast, and it's not effective. It's not going to work.
1: So this notion in the the new book, this idea between a a, a consumer and a a consumer and a citizen, I love. I that. think if you, th- I, I think it's fascinating. And loop this back to where we started before we even sort of got into the meat of this conversation with you and the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, I think fundraising. So I take it back in the forthcoming book, all the way to the beginning of the 20th century, when basically fundraising sort of emerged from PR, marketing, and advertising, these consumer-oriented sort of sciences,
0: hmm. you know, in
1: the in the halls of consumer science. And I think if we were more rooted in citizenship, and and we we started thinking about the idea that once once you receive that initial, you know, Giving Tuesday, for example, you're going to generate hordes. This is where the Pamela story yeah. comes into the mix. Yep. You know, the Pamelas of the world are donating $125 on Giving Tuesday. There's got to be mm-hmm. in my in my opinion on Giving Tuesday is totally evolved, much more positive, as long as we understand that there's yes. a, there's a citizen-like relationship yes. that happens on the other side of that first gift.
2: Yep. How do we and get that, people yeah. to
1: think that way?
2: Well, oh um, yeah. man, Giving Tuesday I I have a lot of opinions about Giving Tuesday. I really think it's a force for good in the world. Yeah, I do too. I, and I, I used to hate. Did, it I did a
1: whole it was all that
2: noise.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did an
2: entire podcast. Um, why nonprofits should stop hating on Giving Tuesday? It's just right, first of all, right. it's lazy. It's an easy target, right. and you can't blame. Your lack of fundraising finesse on Giving Tuesday, right? Giving Tuesday can only help you. Yes, if you spend $10,000 and all your time and you get one donation, that's one thing. But what happens is people just send out a couple of emails and they send the same emails to their donors as non-donors. Because once again, why would we segment? Why would we actually bother to, you know, send a different email to our monthly donors than we send to our donor prospects. So it gets, it just gets this bad reputation. You know, I know Vule called it the Hunger Games, the nonprofit Hunger Games, which I thought was pretty funny. I don't believe also in competition. I don't believe in donor fatigue. Those things are made up. I do not believe in them. I believe that if you are standing up for what you believe in, if you are authentic, if you are communicating, if you're real, if you are solving a problem that needs to be solved and you're telling me how I can help solve that problem, then I'm not going to get tired of hearing from you. Yes. If you're sending me spam all the time and promotions and you're not actually showing me the impact, then yes, maybe I will get, I'll get tired of bad, promotions, but I'll give somewhere else. I'm I'm not fatigued of giving. Donors are not fatigued, okay? They might See, be economically – they might be a little bit believe- less able to give now,
1: but I don't believe in donor fatigue. I, I don't either. And I think mm-hmm. – I, I I don't like to give people who are doing remarkable work advice, but I think you could totally – transform your space in our space in the fundraising space by basically because what you're basically saying is is you believe in the abundance in the world that we live in Mm -hmm. and you're also and i'm again i'm just taking us right back to your story about the peace corps you have a you have all of our marketing principles in our modern 20th century sort of way of thinking about the consumer are based on scarcity and so if you sort of just drew a line in the sand and you said, Okay, we're gonna teach you how to use these tools that are not based on scarcity and consumer mm-hmm. behavior, but they're based on citizenship. Yeah. And you know, it's and 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 the assumption that there's an abundance there, I think yes. they'll start finding the Pam. I think they'll be able to I think they'll be able to find and we talk about this with my clients. I work with a lot of private schools and we talk mm-hmm. about what's called the paddle race. So you get got these events at these, you know, private schools, they do these auctions and they have a paddle race. Yes. And what, what, what you're looking for with Pamela is you're looking for that point in the event where the donor raises their hand and basically says, I can do more than what everyone else in this room who's largely buying shit is doing. And I'll actually give to you perhaps generously. And if you take me out to lunch next week, we can actually have a meaningful relationship. Mm -hmm. So how do we create paddle raises Mm. for citizens so that we find the Pamela's I think is what we're basically getting at.
2: Well, I think you just people need to be paying attention to their email list and their social media following and their mailing list. I mean, we just need to be not treating people like just another line of data.
1: Do they not know how to the see CRM? The... So one of the things we do in my seminars, we have these, we, we have them point out these three gifts. And it's my critique on sort of the notion of renewal. And I say, you've got to look for, you know, if you see $125 three times in a row, you've basically got a renewing donor who's not change, whose relationship is not changing, right? So it's just a renewed relationship. But when yep. you see a gift that goes from, say, 125 to 500 to $2,500, you start to see this sort of evolution and this maturing in the relationship. Yep. Do we basically need to get fundraisers to be able to better see Like my guess is, is that the Pamela's of the world are probably giving multiple gifts and they probably tell a story Mm -hmm. and then they would know how to sort of rely on a communication strategy that might line up.
2: Well, giving is a story, you know, money is a story, philanthropy, it's full of these little stories and we just need to be detectives. So I think coming from a journalism background, that's really helped me because I'm just trained to see stories wherever I go. I think a great example, one that I always share is I was working with um a suicide and abuse prevention uh, agency, substance abuse and misuse agency in my home, my old hometown. I've since I've since moved, but I was working with them. This is pre-pandemic so I was actually go in for meetings yeah, with them, of course. not on Zoom. And they had a gentleman who would come in every Friday at, like, 5 p.m. right before they closed and give them $10. Or no, we'd give him $20 and then yeah. leave. Yeah. And they told me this story. They're like, hey, he's been doing this for a few months. And I'm like, you didn't think to ask him what? The, that seems to me like that's, like, a, either a cry for help or a cry for someone to talk to him. He did it in person yeah. every Friday. So yeah, they finally talked to him and it turns out his son had died of an overdose and $20 was his allowance or like what he would give him every week. Cause he was, he had been in high school. So these stories and he just didn't want another parent to feel the way. Like I almost, I actually get choked up. I've told this story so many times and I get choked up every time I tell it because there are stories like that everywhere, all over your organization And you need, you just, we just need to do a better job. I think we get overwhelmed because we know we're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to miss somebody. We're not going to talk to everyone and someone's going to feel left out and there's politics and this and that. I say, just get started. Just start somewhere. Do it imperfectly. Like imperfectly and done is much better than searching for the perfect
1: way to do it. So. Do you know what I mean? And that's whatever comment I made in Milwaukee. That's exactly what I'm getting at. Is is that you don't? It creates so much noise that it gets in the way. That it becomes this. uh, We use these three lanes in our in our seminars, and I I say that lane one is basically a jealous lane. It doesn't want, and that's where you're getting that.
2: (gasps) Yes, this was in your talk.
1: Yeah, you've got to get lane one is a jealous lane. The initial gift is jealous. It never wants you to think that you can take this relationship any further. And so it always wants you to use the tactics that sort of keep, keep coming back to using the same tactics, but everything you're talking about using that story. I mean, I've, you know, as a fundraiser, you and I both know that we've experienced those stories, but I've got to ask you is some Mm -hmm. of the Julia is some of the reason there's an, there's an inherent risk in asking that question of that gentleman after he's now, after the relationship has now at least matured, meaning you've moved on to the other side of the initial gift.
2: Right.
1: Is there an, is there a risk that the type of fundraising you and I are advocating for that is not, that is sort of absent in the, in, you know, when you're securing you mean the. Ta- asking
2: him, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have asked him. I actually don't know what they asked him, yeah. but I wouldn't say. So what's your story? I would just say, you know, you come in every Friday. Like, uh, how did you find out about us? What, you know, what is it about our organization that you, that, you know, or just, I would just say, how did you discover us?
1: They don't, they don't, Um, this is what I'm. You
2: don't have to say, what's your story? Because then that person would, no, that would, it has to come out naturally.
1: Go back, go back to the notion of marketing and consumer behavior. Marketing Mm -hmm. is all based on predictable behavior. When you ask that question, you don't know what the outcomes are going to be. There's an inherent Mm -hmm. risk in asking that question. Just like when you're sitting there saying to a client, learn how to write copy to existing donors. There's an inherent risk in there that you're going to offend perhaps one of those donors who decides to scream at you. If you're not
2: offending someone, then no one's listening. Right. Exactly. Yes. If you don't have unsubscribes (laughs) on your email list… No one working. is opening it and reading it. So right. yeah, you have to really you have to get used to rejection, of course, if you're a
1: fundraiser. But that's that is why people don't send
2: those emails. That's why that's people your do school not school board. Yeah.
1: That's your school board meeting. Oh. That is your school board meeting.
2: If you your don't have a meeting. if you don't have conviction of your yes. ideas, do not right. run for school committee. You cannot <laughs> be wishy washy. <laughs> right. You can change your mind on things and you can think of things but if if you don't have strong opinions you you'll get eaten alive and you'll also constantly question every vote everything that you do so as long as you i just always think just operate from a set of truths you know a set of values that you have and fundraisers are scared to do that because they want to appeal to everybody and of course Seth Godin if you appeal to everybody you appeal to no one no and i always say really just be just be strong in your mission and stand up for it stand up for it if you want to celebrate black history month and send out an email about black history month and that's something that's important to you do it someone is going to write to you and be mad about it someone's going to write to you and say stay in your lane and you know blah 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 and why are we talking about this i get that all the time and jason i'm sure you do too because you like to ruffle feathers you like to make people think so i i get I mean, when I was, well, now my emails are not very <laughs> controversial. <laughs> they're kind of boring now. But back in the pandemic, you know, especially after George Floyd was murdered and Black Lives yeah, Matter yeah. and racial justice protests, I was really involved in and sure. talking very publicly about it. And I did. I got pushback. But to me, that means people are listening and they're understanding what I'm saying. And then the people I wanted to attract into, you know, I don't, we don't want to say the word tribe, but people that I want to attract into my community became more attracted, right? They, they saw, oh, Julia stands up for what she believes in and is not going to back down and is consistent. I think that's also important. Just be consistent, but you're not going to appeal to everybody and send that email. Come on, fundraisers, (laughs) send that email. Yes, you'll get unsubscribes, but guess what? They were never your people anyway. And they might come back to you. Like to me, an unsubscribe just says, not now. I'm too overwhelmed. I don't, you know, it's either I don't like you, I'm too overwhelmed, it's not for me. So you really have to, you just have to think about it that way and not take that rejection so personally,
1: which I know is Maybe, difficult. maybe, maybe what we're talking about, because I talk about this in my nonprofit management course at the college. Mm-hmm. I explain to them that the nonprofit sector is a sector that exists. Um, so, you know, earlier this week, I've got 32 students in the classroom. There's two two seats on the front row that are empty, and I point to them and I said, "Imagine um, Catholic Charities and Planned Parenthood essentially being having representatives sit in sit, seating, yeah, sit, sit in those two seats." And I said, "Those two those two uh, organizations literally exist on are polar opposites on you know one of the hottest but is hot button issues in our culture today." And I said, "The nonprofit sector exists to have both of them at the table." That's why we exist. And the tension Mm -hmm. that exists in that is what the nonprofit sector is supposed to do. You're not Mm -hmm. going to get the average voter or the average consumer to necessarily side normally on either of those issues in such a way until one of them sort of, you know, goes above and beyond what the other one has to do. And and I think that's that tension between the initial and the subsequent gift. Mm -hmm. Once you're giving subsequent gifts to Planned Parenthood or Catholic Charities, Damn, you're a citizen now. Yeah. You're in a fight. You are part of a tribe. And I don't mm-hmm. know that we've learned as fundraisers. And I think you learned how to communicate with the, those those tribes, whatever word we plug in there. Mm-hmm. I think you learned that stuff when you were a journalist and in the Peace Corps, not when you were in a marketing class. Mm-hmm.
2: No. Well, I never took marketing classes. <laughs> right, right. I love that. Um, isn't it funny? Like I never studied marketing. I never studied marketing. I taught it. To myself and my way of marketing, I really, I like to be provocative. I like to break the rules. Like I, I take a lot of courses now and I read a lot of books, but I kind of piece it together in a way that feels good for me. And I, that's what I wish nonprofits would do. Like you can take a marketing class and learn the principles of marketing, but you don't have to do everything. You know, there's nothing that says you have to be on Facebook. You don't maybe you just want to use Instagram. Maybe you don't want to use any of it. Maybe you want to focus on email. Maybe you want to start a podcast. There is there're just so many options to have your voice heard now that I think follow there's the notion that there's some kind of like rule book to follow um is especially in marketing. Like in fundraising, yes, there are some hard and fast principles that you you need to stick to. Um like at what is it ask thank Report, ask, thank, report. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's what Pam, that's what (laughs) Pam teaches, and in what you teach too, there is like a trajectory that you
1: follow. Yes,
2: but how you get there and the methods you use, you can mix it up. You know, you can actually make it your own.
1: See, that's why I get excited about these conversations because I'm generally talking to a lot of my peers. You and I are sort of on the same sort of timeline in our entrance into the nonprofit sector, (laughs) and people have heard me say that the fundraising world is sort of fundraising as a collective sort of professional group is in what I call its messy adolescence. And I think (laughs) when I listen to you, when I listen to what you're describing, and you're basically saying, I'm not hinging all my thinking on PR, marketing, and advertising that comes from the marketplace, but in fact, I'm actually coming from a rootedness in communication and journalism and the Peace Corps and stuff. Mm -hmm. Utilizing those same tools, but also knowing how to distinctively draw a line in the sand and say we're not the marketplace. I mean, isn't that part of the problem is that, you know, Walmart and Target and McDonald's and Burger King want to sell every damn Whopper and Big Mac that they Mm -hmm. possibly can to everybody on the planet. Your clients and mine only really want to sell their ideas to at best, perhaps half the population. We don't want to sell a Whopper to everybody.
2: That's the, that's the real Issue, I believe, with a lot of the clients that I have, they know that the work they do is so important and often life changing or life saving. And they get so wrapped up and passionate about it that they have a hard time understanding that it's not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah. yeah. And I always tell them there is someone out there that wants to not give you funding. I don't care if you are a little local museum a historical society, a library, uh, a children's theater. There's someone out there that is going to actively think that you should close or be against what you do, even if it's not polarizing. So as long as you are just so like have confidence that your mission is, is worth something and it is, and that you are changing the world for a bet for better. I mean, that's what we're selling. We're selling, we're selling the idea of change.
1: How much of that noise? if we go back to the first question I asked you after you introduced this sort of this, this notion, and we were talking about Pamela's gift, how mm-hmm. much of that noise? If we could just convince the sector to stop trying to appeal to half the populations that they are, how much of that noise would we get rid of?
2: A lot. Oh, we should tell everyone. We should tell <laughs> businesses.
1: That's you, that's mine and your campaign. Nonprofits.
2: I mean, Um, I always believe in quality over quantity. You are not going to beat the internet,
1: especially on
2: quantity. And I hate the term cut through the clutter. I absolutely hate that term because it sounds, it just sounds like you are forcing people. It sounds like you're interrupting people. It sounds like you are making them listen to you when they don't necessarily want to. I think inviting people in is so much more effective and especially long-term strategy. So I really believe in,
1: um, I
2: just believe in quality over quantity any day of the week in any medium.
1: Well, I am certainly delighted to have you had have had you here on the podcast. But I've had hey. you for I've gotten you warmed up, and we've had a lot of chatter here for forty five minutes. Julia, the last question I like to ask people who come from a, a advisory type role that you're in the two questions I like to ask, and you can answer them in any order you want to, um, is how do people find you? And then I want to know who that person is that you want to reach out to. So um, I get. My guests oftentimes get way more feedback, way more uh, engagement than necessarily I do. People know how to find me if they want me. But um, there's somebody who's going to reach out to you today when they hear this. Who do you want that to be? And then how do they find you when they do that?
2: I want it to be that small shop fundraiser or marketer or fundraiser marketer Mm -hmm. who wants to create a plan. And an official, either a campaign or a plan or a strategy for how to best use these digital tools. And they're very overwhelmed. They're stressed. There's a million plates in the air. Maybe they have been tasked with running a digital fundraising campaign for the first time because of COVID. An event went south or something. So that stressed out, overwhelmed, but ambitious and wanting to be creative, small shop. Fundraiser. Oh, and where can you find me? Um, yeah, where do they find you? I am. Uh, my website is jcsocialmarketing.com. and my podcast is Nonprofit Nation. So, if people are listening to this, hopefully, they listen to podcasts a lot. So, just look up Nonprofit Nation wherever you get your podcasts, and that's generally the best way to hear uh, me and the conversations
1: that I have with my guests too. Julia, it has certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back.
0: Yay, thank you. Thanks, Jason.